Have you ever heard of Dr. Herman Snellen? Dr. Herman Snellen. He lived from 1834 to 1908. Uh, maybe that name's not familiar with you, but have you ever... Uh, he had, Well, I guess he invented what's known as the Snellen chart. Uh, maybe you're still uncertain. Well, maybe the picture above gives you a glimpse to you know, what I'm thinking of, but... This, was, uh, this is probably a test that you've taken many times in your life. Of course, uh, Dr. Snellen was the one who invented the Snellen chart, this, uh, this uh, graph here that's used to help uh, with uh, vision. Uh, he was a Dutch eye doctor who created basically the standard that we still use today, back, all the way back in 1862. You know, uh, at times prior to this, if you went to see an eye doctor uh, go from one to another, uh, they would have these different charts, different standards. And, but now he came up with this, this standard chart. And so each eye doctor or optometrist that you'd go see would have a similar uh, chart for you to uh, get your vision uh, measured with. And of course, it always started with that capital E at the top. And as you go down the chart, the, the letters start to gradually get smaller and uh, determining your vision. You know, we often think 2020 is the best vision. You know, that, that's just, that's average vision. That's standard vision, normal vision, that you can see, that you can read these lines clearly at 20 feet. And maybe you, you've taken this test and the eye doctor said, well, you have 20-40 vision. Well, that says uh, that at 20 feet away, what a normal person uh, you can read at 20 feet away what a normal person could read farther back. And so maybe your eyesight is not as good as a normal vision. Or uh, even 2010, that's even better than 2020 vision. You can see at 20 feet uh, what a normal person needs to be 10 feet away to read. And so actually 2020 is not necessarily the best vision, uh, again, but that's just normal vision. But you know, it's amazing that something so long ago invented so long ago is still used today. But, you know, our vision uh, acuity is different from many. You know, I can think of in my own family, uh, my mom uh, wore glasses basically uh, when she was in high school. You know, she's, she's had that sort of eyesight all through her life. My, my father wears glasses. My, my sister wears glasses. Everyone in my family wears eyeglasses except for me. You know, maybe it's because I ate my carrots as a child. But based on, you know, the Snellen chart, uh, you know, you and I and everyone here, we all would have, you know, maybe a different score, uh, different distances we can see better. The Bible, of course, uses sight or lack of as a theme in scripture many times. You know, the, the, the physical aspect of it, you know, some were struck blind because of punishment. We can re- remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 19 where uh, the people who were trying to get into Lot's home, you remember uh, God struck them blind. Uh, but then also, you know, we read many times in the New Testament of Jesus giving people their sight back or even getting their sight for the first time. But really, you know, the Bible really uses... Uh, this vision uh, in, the phys- in the spiritual sense. You know, sometimes those who can see physically, you know, they just can't see spiritually. And that's what was read for us by Daniel here a moment ago in Matthew chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. Uh, in particular, when Jesus is talking about parables and why he teaches in parables, and he says, you know, there are some who, who will keep on seeing, but they, but they won't perceive. You know, they've closed their eyes to the truth. Well, the story that we're going to look at here in John chapter 9 this morning is about a blind man who we're going to notice was able to see far better 
and more clearly than those who had sight. You know, a blind man and his parents and the Pharisees and the disciples of Jesus, these are going to be the players in this account, the, the people in this account. Yet we're going to notice that their spiritual perception of this same event is different uh, in each of their stances. You know, uh, this blind man, again, he could see clearly. He could see at 20 feet away what a normal piece, person would have to you know, get closer to see. And so why was their vision acuity different? And so what we want to do in this moment is sort of recall the story in John chapter 9, and then we'll talk about each and every uh, one of these aspects in here. And so if you have your Bibles in John chapter 9, we're familiar. Uh, if you're familiar with the story, Jesus is passing by and he sees a blind man and his disciples are with him. And his disciples say, Jesus, you know, who sinned? In order for this man to become blind at birth, was it him or was it his parents? You know, and that's that was a common sentiment of the day that that people were born blind, born with deformities because of sin. But Jesus is going to explain that neither. Look at verse three. It says it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. You know, it wasn't that God made this individual blind at birth uh, for uh, a special, um, that, for that very moment. But what Jesus is saying here is, uh, you know, uh, we walk past this man who's born blind. You know, nature ran its course. And, and I'm going to use this opportunity to teach the people uh, something uh, about me. I'm going to use it to glorify God. And so what Jesus does is he spits on the ground and he makes clay and, and he puts it, applies it to the eyes of the blind man. And then he tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And, and he obeys and he comes back and now he has the ability to see. You know, those who knew this man as a beggar, as a blind man, they were confused. Uh, is this truly the, the same person they were asking? How then were your eyes opened? And so he explains to them, a man named Jesus did such and such, and, and now I can see. And they wanted to know where Jesus was. They wanted to talk to Jesus, but of course Jesus uh, wasn't there at that time, and he just said he simply didn't know. So the people uh, took uh, the man who was formerly blind, they took him to the Pharisees. Uh, we're, we're told that this was a Sabbath day, and of course the Pharisees, being the religious leaders of that day, they might want to know that some great miracle happened on the Sabbath day in particular, because of course they um, would have not would have been against those uh, working miracles on the Sabbath, and so they started to interrogate this man about Jesus. Uh, and there was even some discussion between the Pharisees as to, uh, you know, was Jesus legitimate or not? You know, some said, uh, of course he can't be from God. He's, he's healing on the Sabbath. He's not keeping the Sabbath. And then there were some who were saying, well, we've never seen a blind man receive his sight before. Maybe there's something to Jesus. And so they, they asked the man again what, they, what he thought of Jesus. And the man said, well, he's a prophet. But now they're questioning that if this man was even truly blind in the first place. And so what do they do? They go to the man's parents. They find the man's parents and say, is this your son? Was he born blind? You know, how does he now see? And of course, they confirmed the story that, yes, this is my son. And yes, he was born blind. But there was a problem uh, that they didn't want to go any further with that. Look at verses 20 through 23. It says, his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son. 
and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if someone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. You know, they, they kept saying that over and over again. You go ask our son. We don't want anything to do with this. It says he was of age. You know, so really, uh, we don't know how old the, this man who was born blind was, but we know at least he had to have been at least 13 because that was considered being an adult. But again, we have no idea. But, but they were, the parents were afraid to speak up on behalf of their son because they didn't want to get thrown out of the synagogue. And so, uh, so the blind man is now going to be interrogated by the Pharisees a second time. But now it's a little rougher. They say, admit the truth now. We know that you're in collusion with this Jesus. We know that he is a sinner. Tell us the truth. In verse 25, then he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He said, I told you everything. It's amazing to me that you don't know where he is from. Uh, no one has ever heard of the opening of eyes of a, a man born blind. You can't see it, can you? Th this man truly is from God. Uh, at this point, the Pharisees, they had it with this man. Uh, we're told they, they put him out, meaning they, they basically kicked him out of the synagogue. He wasn't going to be able to worship God anymore there. He was going to be excommunicated, banished, whatever. But they uh, were no longer going to associate with this man because of the faith in Jesus that he had in proclaiming him to be from God. And Jesus, hearing this, hearing that the man was put out, returns in the story. Look at verse 35 through 39, because he returns back to the man to comfort him. It says, Jesus heard that he had put him out and finding him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Again, though I was blind, now I see. See, the Pharisees in this account, they just could not see that Jesus was Lord. The parents were afraid to admit that a great miracle happened to their child because they didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. And the disciples that we read about all the way back in the beginning of this account, they attributed uh, the, the blindness of this man to sin. So what's wrong with each of their visions uh, here? Uh, again, they were all looking at the same chart. You know, when we have our vision tested, we all look at the same chart. They were all looking at the same chart, if you will, of the, of the same account of this man born blind. But yet their vision in each of these accounts was different. So let's, let's make some application to, these, uh, to their spiritual vision. And let's first talk about the disciples of Jesus in verses 1 through 5. Again, the, the disciples here of Jesus, they thought that the suffering of this man was directly attributed to a person's sin or, or maybe even his parents' sin. See, that was their vision. You know, there must have been a reason for this man's plight. But Jesus, however, we see in, this, in, this, in these verses says it was neither him nor his parents that caused him to be blind. And, you know, again, this concept uh, in Scripture is as old as the book of Job. If you go back to the book of Job, 
You know, this is, of course, where, where Job uh, is, is visited uh, with a, a great calamity on his family and also the health of his body. And then his three friends come and visit him in uh, chapters four and and towards the end of the book. And his friends are there to uh, to speak with him. But, of course, they've sort of had the wrong idea of what's going on here. They have this idea that Job must have done something to cause this to happen to his life. We know uh, from reading chapters 1 and 2, we know that, that, that God was showing uh, Satan that, that, that Job was not going to fold uh, in the, those times of pressure. But uh, again, those people who could not see the spiritual aspect of it, such as the friends of Job, they attributed all of these bad things happening to Job to sin. In Job chapter 4, in particular, verse 7 and 8, one of his friends by the name of uh, Eliphaz says, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Again, he, he's saying, listen, Job, you need to confess your sins because God's bringing judgment upon you because of it. And even one of his other friends, Bildad, had the same, the same thought. In chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, he says this, If your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Bildad's saying, listen, your sons, the reason why your sons died, all 10 of them, was, must have been because of sin. It must have been because of some iniquity in their lives that they are not willing to repent of. Of course, so later on in the book of Job, in Job chapter 16, verse 2, Job refers to his friends as miserable comforters, you know, sorry comforters. You know, even the rabbis in the days of Jesus, they believed that, you know, in such a, um, circumstances that if a, a pregnant woman walked into a, a heathen temple and, and that the unborn child was actually uh, also committed adultery for worshiping a false god. You know, again, that's the... The state of the day that people believe that, hey, you did something wrong, and that's why God's punishing you. You know, even today, you know, people will say something to the effect of, well, you know, that's karma, right? Karma's coming back on him, or he just got his just desserts, you know, because people today also have that view. And yes, sometimes God uses suffering to discipline. You know, we can see that throughout Scripture all the time. But sometimes, you know, we suffer. Because we're in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? Uh, uh, we're sitting in a car and a drunk driver's coming down the road. We're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And sometimes we suffer because of that. Sometimes we suffer because of biology or genetics or health. You know, the things we put uh, in our own body. Sometimes we suffer because of that. And we should never, never look at someone suffering and say, well, that's God's discipline. You know, maybe it is. But we just don't know. Perhaps it could be. But again, we just can't know. So why add insult to injury? You know, in Job chapter 42, at the end of the book, uh, God comes to Eliphaz and says, listen, um, I don't like the things that you said and you and your friends said against me. His wrath was kindled against them. And he even told Job, go and pray for your friends because the things that they were saying were false. You know, and Jesus, again, in this account said that it was not because of sin but so that God could be glorified. And we must be careful, again, not to throw, overthrow someone's faith 
uh, like the disciples uh, could have had the opportunity to do here uh, by claiming that this man either sinned or his parents sinned to bring about, uh, bring about that cause. The disciples' vision need to be adjusted, and maybe we need to rethink those as well. So the vision of the disciples of Jesus. Secondly, the vision of the Pharisees. You know, they, they saw the results of this miracle that took place, uh, but they refused to accept Jesus because of it. There was no, you know, praise God or hallelujah or amen, uh, but, you know, they were concerned about the violation of uh, their Sabbath day. There was no rejoicing with those who rejoice or weeping with those who weep. Their vision was truly blind. And because of that, they cast this man out of the synagogue and accused Jesus of sin. You know, we don't like having our beliefs challenged, do we? Uh, how many of us, when, when, when someone might say something contrary to what we believe, uh, according to the scriptures, how many of us go ahead and, and weigh the evidence? You know, go and look it up in the Bible and see, well, was I right or maybe was the other person right? Uh, if we find an inconsistency, if we find an inconsistency in what we believe, you know, are we willing to, to, uh, uh, to weigh the evidence again and make the change? Because sometimes saying I'm wrong it's not as easy uh, as being illogical, right? Uh, many will be illogical rather than admit that they're wrong. Just like the Pharisees uh, went on and just went on being illogical. But again, this, man, this blind man said, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. We were told of a, uh, one of our, in our preacher, um, one of our instructors in preaching school told us of a story about how he had gone to a man's home. Uh, he called him up and said, uh, listen, I am ready to get baptized. And this man was in his 80s and he was married to a Christian woman his whole life. But he called up the preacher and said, I'm ready to uh, I've never obeyed the gospel, but I am ready to obey now. Can we do it today? Can you come or can you meet me at the church building and and do this? And of course, uh, he de- he does this. They show up to the church building. Uh, he baptizes the man and he asks him, well, why? Why now? Well, here's the thing. A couple of months ago, his wife, his Christian wife had just passed away. And what he told the preacher was, my wife tried for years to get me to obey. And I knew that she was right all along, but I just could not admit to her that I was wrong. He didn't want her to win the argument. He waited until she died, and then he called the preacher. Then he obeyed the gospel. And friends, how risky that was, because he died a few months later. Some just can't admit being wrong. You know, I see what you're saying. I see what the Bible says. I see what the scriptures say. But again, that, that's not what my parents taught or that's not what my preacher taught. And so I, I, I just I can't go along with it. But again, it's not about looking good in your own eyes, but it's about looking good in God's eyes. The vision of the Pharisees. Let's notice the vision of the parents here. Uh, they wanted to remain neutral in this account. Their response is very interesting. They were afraid of getting in trouble to take a stand. And this was for their own son. If they said that he was healed by Jesus, then they too would have been put out. So they didn't want to be disciplined, right? They still wanted to be able to go to the synagogue to worship. They didn't want to be treated as a heathen or a tax collector. So they, again, they tell the Pharisees, you ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. 
And today we see that there are just too many today who want to remain neutral. Can we be neutral and follow Jesus? Of course, Jesus tells us no, that we can. Matthew, ch- ch- Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, he says, you know, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. But if you do not confess me before men, I won't confess you before the Father. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. You remember the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16? You remember this, the seven churches of Asia that all received commendation and rebukes from Jesus? And the last church that he addresses is the church that's in Laodicea. And in verses 15 and 16, Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus says that their lukewarmness in that congregation was disgusting to him, that he wanted to spit. Some of your translations say he wanted to vomit them out of his mouth. He even said there, I'd rather you be cold, uh, you know, cold in your Christianity, that there's nothing there than being lukewarm. And nominal Christianity is like that, right? We, We don't want to rock the boat. And so we just do enough to get by in our own eyes. Jesus said, I'd rather you be for me or against me. But again, not in the middle, not being lukewarm. You know, and these letters uh, are addressed to the churches uh, in these, these, uh, these locations, these bodies. But, but notice the, the individualistic, individualistic uh, tendencies in these verses where, where Jesus says, Like in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and will dine with him and he with me. You know, it's not about uh, this church as a collection. You know, Jesus isn't saying, listen, uh, you know, for instance, you know, the Columbia Church of Christ, you know, maybe uh, he sees 50 or 60 percent of the congregation is zealous for him. And so uh, he checks them off the, the mark and goes on to the next congregation. But no, he's talking about the individual Christians that make up that congregation. It's not about the church as a whole, but each one making up uh, the church. Uh, are we acting like those those parents right? uh, that, that just don't want to step in? They, they want one foot in the world and one foot outside of the church. And all the parents saw, all they could see in this account was potentially getting kicked out of the synagogue. You know, let's, they're saying, let's not get into it any deeper than we have to. And so they would not confess him as Christ, despite the evidence. Well, the final uh, piece of this puzzle that we want to look at is the vision of the man born blind. You know, he shared Jesus and what Jesus had done for him as soon as he was healed. Right? He was that excited. He was that on fire for Christ. He boldly affirmed that Jesus was a prophet of God in verse 17. And then you see his, his faith increase as this account goes further. Verse 27, he implies that he is a disciple of Christ. Right? He asks him, you don't want to be a disciple too, do you? Uh, he's a disciple of Christ. In verse 33, he is a man of God. And in verse 38, uh, he says, finally, yes, I admit that you are the son of God. I believe, Lord. He was not afraid of what his fellow man would think in that moment. He suffered the consequences for his convictions. 
but he also enjoyed the rewards of his conviction. Did he give up? Even though he was kicked out of the synagogue, banished, again, he finds Jesus again at the end of chapter 9. He falls at his feet and he worships Jesus. He didn't let them destroy his faith uh, in the one who had healed him. And that's a question we want to ask ourselves this morning is, do we allow the power of others to destroy our faith? You know, think back to Job once again. In Job chapter 1, verse 9, Satan uh, really confronted God and said, Listen, uh, the only reason Job is serving you is because you've put a hedge around him. You've blessed him with everything. Job doesn't fear God for nothing. But God proved through Job and through that entire book that, yes, uh, Job truly did serve God for nothing. If it meant he had to suffer, he did that. If it meant that he stood alone, he did that. Remember at the end of chapter one, he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And even in chapter two, his wife comes to him and says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job, through all of that, stood, stood firm for God. See, the one who can't see themselves uh, or be the one, be the one who can't let, can't see themselves letting someone run them from Jesus. Again, we need to always continually remind ourselves that Jesus as well had a bad experience with religious people in his day. Right? They crucified him. So we cannot allow uh, our, um, or those around us uh, to push us away from the faith. Again, Jesus experienced that uh, with the religious people of the day. Well, the blind man, of course, you know, what, what this lesson is titled, uh, really the, the theme of this lesson is, though I was blind, now I see. And how ironic that the blind man had the best vision in this chapter of all. Do we see the blessings of God in our lives? Uh, can, can you look around and see those blessings? How important it is for us to constantly remind ourselves to, that we need to be looking through spiritual glasses. We need to see those blessings. Maybe throughout this story, throughout this lesson, maybe you saw yourselves in one of these you know, four categories that we took a look at. Maybe you see yourself as one of the disciples who, you know, maybe, maybe we need to reevaluate our views on some things. Or maybe the Pharisees uh, refusing to accept the truth, you know, that we can't admit that we were wrong. Or maybe we're like the parents who are unwilling to get involved for the cause of Christ, or even the blind man. Who, who stood with Jesus no matter what anyone said. Well, friends, this morning is just a good reminder for us and a good time to evaluate our lives as well. And if we need to make changes in our lives to be more committed to Christ, then let's do that. I hope all of us can say that we have the faith of the blind man, that we would stand there in front of opposition and say that he is our Lord and that they wouldn't be able to run us off. But if not then maybe there's something wrong uh, with our faith and maybe we need to change. Right? A change is not a bad thing. It's a sign of wisdom that, that we're going to grow stronger and be more committed. The Hebrews writer in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 said that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, God's word is not just a good read you know, that, that we can use our physical eyes to read, but we also need to make sure that we're not going blind spiritually in this life, and we need to allow the Word of God to transform our lives, to change our lives for the better. So this morning, as we offer the invitation, uh, maybe that's you. 
Uh, maybe you need to grow stronger uh, in the faith. Maybe you need the encouragement of the Christians here to do that. Uh, maybe you see yourselves in one of these four categories. And you decide this morning that I want to change for the better. That, that I want to be like the blind man. Or maybe this morning uh, you're here with us and maybe you have not put Christ on in baptism. Uh, maybe this morning uh, you're ready to do that, and we're ready to assist you with that as well. The Bible says that we need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, repent of our sins. Again, change our minds and get them aligned with, with Christ and His Word. Confess Him as Lord, and then be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. And at that point, the Lord will add you to His church. And the Bible says from that point forward, we're going to live a faithful life for Him, that we're going to grow and increase in knowledge and in wisdom and in grace. And we would love to assist you this morning. If we can help you in any ways, please come forward as together we stand and sing.